Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. So we are here with a very special guest. Derek, why don't you tell us about yourself and what you work on? Sure, yeah. My name is Derek. I'm a a screenwriter out in Los Angeles. Um, I've been out here about 20 years writing professionally for almost 15. I've worked in TV. I've worked on um, shows that have been produced. I've also worked in TV in the development process selling pilots. Uh, I've written in movies. None of my movies have ever gotten made, but uh, especially recently, I've had a run of pitches that I've sold and, and scripts that I've written. And it all, you know, I didn't really write my first screenplay till I moved out here. I actually went to college wanting to write novels and wanting to write um, short fiction. But then when I was in college quite a while ago, um, TV was changing. It was in the era of uh, The Sopranos and Six Feet Under. And all of a sudden, I found my focus shifting towards, um, you know, modern TV and film. Um, and then moving out to LA was kind of the first time I actually read it. I read a screenplay, met people in the industry. I was an assistant. I interned and then kind of understood that there's like a, this whole, like structure might be the wrong word, but there's this whole ecosystem out here that you can kind of like meet people and, and get to know people and it's a lot less um i found it to be less isolating than writing um short fiction mm-hmm. and, and novels and uh and yeah I, I won't rule it out i hope one day to, to go back to prose but um for now i'm i'm writing for the screen i was a writer on a cop show in new york called the unusuals i was a writer on the last two seasons of friday night lights um, and I wrote an episode of another cop show, Hawaii Five-0. I've also written pilots that technically are not dead, but, you know, I, I could talk about them in the abstract. I've written um, pilots for uh, Gomon Television, um, which has shows out there, uh, Universal Cable. And movies, you know, movies, it's a little trickier because um, they take a long time and there's movies I was hired to write, you know, eight years ago that, uh, believe it or not, we at least adopt the language that it's still possible, (laughs) you know, for these things to get made. Um, So I probably should talk less about um, the movies that I've worked on. That's very cool. So is there a built-in social life if you're a screenwriter, like you're going to parties and you're meeting everyone on the production? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's, that's the general magnetic gravitational pull of it, especially if you compare it to writing it to to novels or um, short fiction, where it's it's very collaborative. Like every aspect, I mean, the TV writers room itself is anywhere from you know three to a dozen writers. Um, and that's simply for the speed of keeping up with what needs to be produced. Uh, one writer oftentimes can't do it all unless they give that writer either a lot of lead time or the writer super talented. Even if you are writing a movie, there's just forced collaboration. Like I, I know novelists work with their editors and they have their they're alpha readers and they're beta readers, but so many more people have input into a screenplay that there's just ongoing dialogues and conversation um, that kind of just have like a more collaborative feel um, than than writing a novel. So 
Uh, yeah, kind of just that it's very like DNA core. It's like a more, it's more collaborative and more oriented towards, for better and for worse, more oriented towards committees. Like one thing, I, one thing that surprised me when I moved out here was how important outlining was not for the creative aspect of outlining. Outlining was important. So 25 people could digest what you're trying to do in like five minutes just by reading through an outline. And that struck me as like a big difference from writing fiction is that the outline is not just for you. It's for, you know, people who have to scout locations and people who have to like think about props and people who have to think about casting to look at, you know, before you've even, even written the script. Oh, that's cool. I mean, it's a little like the acquisitions board in terms of buying it, but you're right. You need to build a full physical world around it. So um, whenever I'm in these meetings, they're like, oh, no fantasy, no sci-fi, no historical, because it's expensive. <laughs> right. um, but of course, we've seen things in all those categories do well, too. Right. Um, and when you say acquisitions, are you talking about acquisitions in uh, like what medium? Like at so, a publishing house, you know, if someone at Macmillan wants to buy your book, they have to run it by a board of editors who, you know, are huh? like, oh, it's similar to this book. That book sold this many copies. Let's plug that number into our magic formula. But they, they're they not all going to read it, right? Because every week there are going to be so many different books that are presented. So it's going to be, here's this book I want to buy. Here are the main selling points. Here are the main things that happen. Can I please buy this book? It's also interesting. And I think like before we get into talking about the strike and everything else, like how quickly do ideas come and go in Hollywood? Mm, okay, yeah. The speed is confusing. Um, <laughs> still wrapping my head around it. Because sometimes it can be lightning. Like when you're in production, it's lightning fast and it's pedal to the metal. And, you know, a lot of times people work past midnight because if you don't get the pages in or you don't fix the pages, you know, people show up to set and there's nothing to shoot. Mm -hmm. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is development where it can go very fast and then you can hear nothing for like <laughs> <laughs> a year, you know, and then it can, it can rev back up again. And it's, um, it's weird. It's I'm still kind of having to parse through the language because no one ever wants to give the impression that something has stopped or is moving backwards. Um, so you just everyone has different like words for like, it's slowly moving forward or moving forward at a medium pace, where you just kind of have to like interpret it as like, okay, I think I'll be writing this by Christmas. I don't know. Um, so yeah. well, uh, just from a word nerd perspective, what are some of those? Uh, oh, the euphemisms? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like, you know, we're batting it around or a lot of times we're waiting for the, the market to take shape a little more. Like everything's constantly in motion, like new like streamers are taking on, taking new strategies or new companies are becoming streamers. And it just kind of like shifts the landscape a little bit. And so like you can always say we're going to uh, take a moment to kind of like digest the marketplace uh, and, and what's what's coming down the pike. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a delay tactic. Um, yeah, it always feels like a carnival game to me, almost, you know. Know, where you know like the ducks moving <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Just try and like and after you know we've had we, we've dealt with a lot of um you know screenwriters and producers and stuff at the manuscript academy and they all have such great energy and it's it's a faster more kinesthetic feel <laughs> than traditional publishing it's fascinating mm -hmm. right right yeah i mean you know the nice thing about working in isolation i know no novelist work entirely in isolation but it just you can write at your own speed whereas like a lot of times if I'm writing something and I'm making like a big change I'm saving my future self a lot of time if I check in with my manager what if maybe I have a conversation going on with a, an executive on the side that one day wants to read the script and I just I just need to bounce it off of people hmm. uh, 
not because like no one's going to penalize you if you show up having you know presenting your own original work for free no, no one paid you to write it yet no one's going to penalize you for just doing that but um you might find out like oh there's three projects exactly like this in development right now you should have made this character a female or you should have said it right. in europe you know um so yeah when always- i was teaching screenwriting i always said that like you know, like, okay, I've, I've heard this before. <laughs> what is that one tiny thing that you could do? Like you could put this grandma on a motorcycle. That would change everything. You know, like it doesn't really matter. It's just like those tiny tweaks make all the difference. So let's just go back to the strike. And that's why we're here. You know, so tell us what's going on and what the, stri- the WGA stri- strike is all about. Right, right, right. Well, from just the highest altitude macro scale, strikes kind of need to happen every decade and a half, every two decades, just because the world changes, technology technology changes, the medium changes, the format changes, and corporations are going to take whatever changes have occurred. They're going to try and take advantage of um, language loopholes, or they're going to try and take advantage of, you know, whatever they can um, in order to maximize the bottom line. Um, And that's their job. Um, And then it's the union's job, the Writers Guild union's job to say, wait a second, this is not in the spirit of uh, the work that we historically do in this medium, the way you're paying us. So we need to change it to make things less um, turbulent, more stable for us to string together a career. Um, so that's that happens every you know 15 years, whether it's the video cassette emerging or the DVD or you know uh, in 2007 um, Netflix wasn't streaming yet, Hulu didn't exist, um, but ABC and Fox are starting to throw their TV shows up on their websites on ABC.com. You could watch episodes of Grey's Anatomy. And writers were saying, TV writers were saying, wait, I'm not seeing any money for that. Like typically, if your episode reruns on broadcast TV. You get a big paycheck um, every time it airs, but people, you know, back in 2007, you get a couple thousand views of an episode that was put up on the website and the writers were concerned that like pretty soon all of TV is going to be on the internet. So we need to get ahead of this and we need to figure out a way to monetize reruns on the internet. And they put a little bit of a, a foothold in there, but not strong enough and Netflix and all the So now in 2023, all the streaming companies are paying pennies on the dollar of what they used to pay for residuals. And that's one point. That's one of like a half dozen major points that are in contention right now is that the old residual formula doesn't really apply effectively to the streamers, Amazon, Netflix, Apple Plus, Hulu. And the residuals are a big part of a TV writer existing in LA and not having to leave the city every time they're not employed because it's it's a passive income that you can survive off of in between jobs. So that's that's probably the most salient point for the middle-class TV writer. And then probably the biggest uh, point for point of contention for the, the feature writer, the movie writer, is slowly um, there's emerged this, uh, this one-step deal where uh, a lot of movie writers, instead of getting turning in one draft and getting a chance at a rewrite, um, they only get to turn in one draft. And so like the idea was that you could take you could take, you could take a chance on someone who was like you know a new writer and be like okay you don't have any produced credits but we'll pay you for one draft um mm-hmm. and we'll pay you i don't know two-thirds three-quarters the price that typically historically writers get for two drafts but then what happens is that writer feels so much pressure to turn in that one draft that they end up rewriting it over and over and over again because they need to hit a home run of course and it, it just ends up turning into the same amount of labor but for you know two-thirds or three-quarters the mm-hmm. price and two or three paid. times the pressure at least right, right. right and like and like the idea of like no writer writes in one draft no 
and, and that's and, ridiculous, right? And it depends on the audience too. They'd have to be psychic to know exactly what that person mm-hmm. wanted because producer A, well, is it the producers who are choosing who's who's saying um, that it's good enough? Yeah, the studio. Okay, no. so studio A will want edit A, studio B will want edit B. How do they know which one they want? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so, so yeah, it, you know, it's not only like emotionally does it shake the confidence of the writer, but the writer ends up sending in like slipping or sneaking a I don't know zero point zero draft to the studio being like so is this what you wanted from the by, uh, by the first draft in the first draft and they'd be no you wanted this in our first in our first and only draft and so basically you've created two drafts but you're paying less so that's something that um the feature side is fighting for but i have to say like a lot of my recent jobs have been in the feature realm um feature writers are turning into the minority the the majority of the working screenwriters do work in tv so they kind of carry a lot more voice and in a good way there's like this incredible amount of solidarity because 70 percent of the writers are so passionate about the same issues you know it's ideally the writers would invite every single writer in the country and be like novelist come on in you know comic book writers come on in the more diverse a union is the less power it has the less solidarity it has so um it just so happens that tv is booming right now and so the writers guild has a pretty unified voice and they they want to look out for the the little feature writing population but by and large the clout is in um in tv and tv has they've shut down shows like in the past wow wait can you tell us a story about that about shutting down shows Mm -hmm. um yeah. So, I mean, overall, the big um, card that the guild plays is, uh, you know, if you don't agree to our terms, we're going to go on strike, we're not going to report to work, and all these projects are going to be frozen. But that's that's stuff that hasn't yet entered production, stuff that has entered production. Like, there's literally no one left in the writer writer's room. There's no one left to be on set. There's no one left to, like, sit in the editing bay and talk with the editors. And so all of those shows basically shut down. They keep and try, they treat, they keep, they try to keep going the ones they think they can salvage without a writer on premises but then you also get people with picket signs out in front of the production facilities in front of the sound stages there's such unity to the unions like hollywood is a union town and there's the the teamster union and there's the iatsi you know stage and lights union and the respect is pretty high amongst all these unions that um like it's so deeply ingrained in the teamster union which is the truckers that they will never cross a picket line, that um, the trucks will literally see two picket sign holders standing in front of uh, you know a warehouse that has a soundstage and they'll refuse to cross it. And the trucks will stop, they'll do a U-turn. And so none of the lights will get delivered, none of the props will get delivered. The show can't shoot that day. And if that happens one or two days in a row, it's not worth it to keep trying. So they just disband the show, they freeze the show. Um, so there's like a couple dozen shows that, you know, season two of uh, Severance on Apple, you know, had to shut down, you know, 10 other shows like that, 10 other shows that were set to debut in the fall. So that's that's a big thing that's happening right now. That's so inspiring, though. I mean, I know I, we had heard that, you know, when everyone is on strike, who's a writer and production stops, it's not just people who are directly related, but the people doing dry cleaning for the costumes, the people doing lumber for building sets, the people doing catering, all these different industries, there's this huge ripple effect and i love that at least the trucks are in on it too right right yeah i mean the idea is it's you know someone sets the pattern the writers guild is a very powerful union so the writers guild sets a pattern of telling the companies that they can't squeeze the bottom line that much and they kind of set up a pattern of, of demands and a pattern of they get certain victories where the next union who has to negotiate can point at those victories being like you gave the writers this you need to give us exactly that or almost that so yeah it's unions helping each other that's that's the idea um and, you know for the, for all the industries that that get hurt um all the non-writer unions um 
I don't know too much about the details of this, but there's a big entertainment fund for people who have lost their work over the summer that the Writers Guild has amassed and that like the big friends of... Uh, of the Writers Guild have amassed where basically the idea is it can float people who aren't able to uh, build sets or aren't able to pair styling. Um, you can draw from this entertainment fund to survive the the hundred day drought that that is the the strike. Yeah, it's it's also interesting. How does a writer get into the Writers Guild of America? And how does that harness who gets jobs in Hollywood and how it works? Because pe people want to be screenwriters, but it's not necessarily an easy thing mm -hmm. to be in the guilds. I mean, there's can, can you talk to that and, you know, the best way to get in and the benefits of being in the guilds? Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, the easiest thing to explain would be the benefits of getting in the guilds. So I'll start with that, where it's the, the minimums. That's another thing that are always fought for every time negotiations come up. Is that the, if you're in the Writers Guild and someone wants to hire you, there is a minimum salary they can pay, um, which tends to be really nice for the period that you're employed. You know, for a TV writer, it's like $5,000 a week. Or for a feature writer, a standard movie, I think, is around in the ballpark of $100,000 to write a screenplay, which only takes, only supposed to take about 12 weeks to write. And those minimums are probably the single most beneficial thing to keep writers thriving and keep them only as writers in their career where they don't have to juggle six jobs. So it's a powerful thing. The minimums they set, the, the rules of engagement, the protocol and the etiquette, and just kind of like looking out for the, the culture of the worker, looking out for the finances of the worker. You always have the guild at your back. And anytime, in theory, anytime you experience uh, kind of like poor ethics in your relationships with studios, you can always get help from the Writers Guild. Everyone's afraid to be the bad guy, so they, they don't pick up the phone oftentimes. But um, they're there for every worker, um, every writer. Uh, the ways to get in, TV side is real simple. It's... Um, get an episode produced of your TV show. Or I think there's ways you could sell a pilot. And I think if you make over, I want to say like over like $40,000 um, selling a pilot, which is you will because the minimum is well above that. Um, can get you in the Writers Guild. If you're a novelist coming in, um, you know, selling a spec feature gets you well over that. I don't know what the bottom threshold is. I feel like it's $40,000. Yeah. Can you tell um, them what a spec feature is? Oh, a spec feature. Yeah. So a spec feature would be um, you have an idea and you're like, oh, I might write the novel or maybe this would be a good movie. And you write like a 120 page movie for your idea and someone wants to buy it, um, you know, there's a minimum that someone can buy it for. And that minimum is easily enough to get you across the threshold to become a Writers Guild writer. A lot, I'm, I know writers have gotten in the Guild by adapting their own novel that they've written and selling the pilot for the novel that they've written. That gets them in the Writers Guild. So yeah, it just gets you like protections against kind of like, you know, market abuse, um, against workplace abuse. So so yeah, that's, that's what it does. I'm just trying to draw parallels here. So we have our big five publishers. You have the big studios. And these rules apply if you are selling something to them, right? The minimum price is to them, not to like if you're selling it to somebody independent. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, and then there's the big studios and then there's every other production company and everyone who wants to pay Writers Guild writers for anything. So a production company, a producer, some, it's not all, there's not a ton of producers just going around town being like, hey, I'll pay you a hundred grand to write something. But there are <laughs> producers that do that. 
And in order to, you know, pay money to a Writers Guild writer to write something, um, you have to be a WGA signatory. Um, I think at this at this time, there's 400, maybe 500 companies that, that are WGA signatories that will pay you to write something. And, uh, you know, a lot of times the big, the big seven studios that you hear all the time, a lot of times smaller production companies will hire a writer to write something with the idea that they will then sell it to Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. Um, so there's like a kind of like a power pyramid there. Is there education within the guild to help everyone understand the impacts and the ripple effects of all of these different terms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one great thing about most of the industry being in LA, there's also a sizable chunk in, in New York, is that they have in-person meetings um, that you can attend. There's a negotiation negotiation every three years between the Writers Guild and the studios. And across those three years, there's all kinds of ways to communicate your concerns to the guild, to um, uh, the strike captains, where the constant communication allows them, the Writers Guild, to understand like, oh, we're feeling a lot of, you know, pressurized inflection points about these issues, these eight issues. Let's go into our next negotiation, fighting for an increase in minimums, fighting for the two-step deal, fighting for streaming residuals. That's like a three-year conversation they've had with writers that, you know, force them to go in with those uh, those eight points. And then, you know, out of nowhere will come like a wild card point, like uh, like artificial intelligence. Like no one was talking about that a year ago. Yeah, that's one of our questions. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. Like, like, can you go more into that? How people are afraid of AI transforming, uh, you know, Hollywood and the screenwriters. Yeah. And could it literally be used as a strike breaker? Like all the writers are on strike, but AI doesn't care? Oh, I mean, one day. I don't think we're there yet, just uh, judging by the technology, but one day. Um... But I think it's interesting because the more, like say The Simpsons. So if you loaded all the Simpsons into AI, you know, and you said, hey, create five more for us. They probably could because there's so many lines you could follow within The Simpsons. Those are very, just, you know, very clear characters and things like that. And so if you think about that, it's a really scary thing that this could be taken over. That's the fear for like, I would say 10 years out. So one thing I talk about on the, the picket lines a lot is AI because everyone has like different predictions and fears and relationships with it. And what I've collected is that that's the fear like 10 or 20 years from now that AI can just outright replace writers. I think right now is, is exactly what you said, Julie, where um, they would take all the scripts for The Simpsons, feed it into AI, and AI would spit out like some very bad scripts. But instead of hiring, you know, a full writer's room of 12 people to like write The Simpsons, they would need to only hire three or four people who could, you know, from the mess that was spat out by the AI machine, do enough like medium lifting where it would only take like three or four writers to write an entire season versus 12 so yeah, so the idea is you could knock out um, kind of like some early basic labor um, and just like exploit it, exploit it with language. I think I think the kind of clear loophole here is there's a lot of like IP adaptation where the writer, you know, they, they give a, a screenwriter IP and they're like, here, make a make a movie out of this. Um, studios could definitely come up with a, a basic idea, feed it into an AI machine, have it spit out like a terrible two-hour movie. But in, instead of paying a writer, you know, 150 grand to write a first draft, they would pay them 25 grand to say, can you revise this, you know, right. we have, <laughs> you know. Or... And, and we've talked about it too. And it's like the human element, the emotionality. Will AI get to the place where it can give us those feelings that, you know, media gives us, that film, that stories give us. I mean, 
Is that even like, are they thinking that's possible? My personal opinion is I think AI could get us like two thirds of the way there. Right. You know? And then it would take someone to do the last, you know, 33%. Um, but you know, there are people who think that AI will just octuple and octuple and octuple in its ability. And like in five years, they'll be able to perfectly mimic like Aaron Sorkin. So, I mean, I tend to be skeptical of, you know, that ceiling for it, but I mean, it can definitely knock out a significant aspect of the labor, significant portion of the labor. You would think in an era when we have so much quantity of TV to choose from, like you would think that with all the amazing things on Netflix, all the amazing things on every streaming service with so much choice, wouldn't humans naturally gravitate toward things written by humans? And wouldn't we want to factor in that there's so much out there that you might as well like, I mean, in in all of the cost of the production, I imagine the $100,000 for the writer is a small percentage of the cost of making it happen. So like, isn't that a worthy investment if it has to stand out with all those other projects? I would think so. I mean, and that tends to be the stuff that most people gravitate towards, you know, you know, my wife and I, we watch the, the prestigious shows and the shows nominated for Emmys. Um, but you know, there are some kind of like, basic level things that still fall under the domain of the Writers Guild that um, are a little more basic in nature, like kids programming, um, stuff that doesn't necessarily like go that deep or like have that many layers to it. I have a three-year-old daughter. For like the Wiggles. Like the wig- right, AI right. could do the Wiggles or the Teletubbies or like... right, right. I don't know. If you <laughs> just, just go I mean, go into YouTube and type in. Yeah, kids I'm a- I'm yeah. aging myself with my kids, but oh, I was right. like, oh. I bet the kids could be like, I like that episode and oh my gosh, right, right. Well, well, I I think there's things like that where, like, developmentally, you could like put in all the indicators for, like, you know, like it's this color and this flashing and this way of like, you know. But Sesame Street would still have more heart, you know. Yeah. But but let's let's just go back. So so that's complicated. Then, but you you know, I'm still thinking of this. You know, you have a feature 120 pages. And in theory, it's 12 weeks, but you have all the meetings before you have all the people that you need to talk to. So you're talking with the director, the producers, the production company, um, who you might want to like play in a character. And then once you have some, like, you're going to want to try to appeal to that character because you want to have certain things, that particular actor that you want to have attached. So you have a very complicated ecosystem for your writing where, you know, so $100,000, you know, like once you consider all of those factors and the human brain effort to pull that all in, can, well, one, can AI do that? I mean, cause it's like, you know, like you have to know a little bit about all the players and it is so much brain work. So you, you might be working for a certain amount of time, but you're probably thinking of this project for six months, eight months, <laughs> you right. know? So like, I, mean, I know they can't figure out a way to like quantify that, that emotional labor around the work, but that must be a part of the conversation when you're looking at reducing, <laughs> you know, the amount of drafts or the payment. Like, I think it's, just, it's, it's, it's more complicated. Like, cause I think if other writers say, well, you make a hundred thousand dollars, you work 12 weeks, you know, yeah. what are you complaining about? But it's so much more than that. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of um, communication and kind of like synthesizing 
recognizing different people's input and just kind of like letting it just like emotionally like marinate where you like realize like, oh, my way in, it's through my personal experience that kind of I had when I was that age. Um, so there's a lot of writing that you do where your laptop's not even plugged in, where you're just like thinking about stuff. And yeah, and that's just kind of one of the big hazards of any, you know, writing job is like, you're going to be working on it um, when you're not literally typing. And then, yeah, in terms of AI, I mean, yeah, I don't know how, I don't know how AI factors into that. It's just, yeah, we'll see. Like, I mean, it's it's new. And the biggest thing is like, we just need some kind of protection that um, like right now, all that Writers Guild is asking for is you can't credit AI as the first writer on anything or, or give him any any writing credit. Um, you know, that's our domain. Um, and you can't bring in fake, you know, people to earn those credits that that we that are always that we are entitled to. Um, and I guess the the big stalemate is like the studios refuse to even engage in like finding language for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, everyone's still wrapping their heads around it. Um, but language would be the first, the first step. Can you see the drafts of, you know, here's the paragraph we agree to. Okay. We've made these changes. Here's the paragraph we agree to, to defining all of this. Can you watch the stages go as if it's like a big Google doc in the negotiations or is it just like, you know, here's what we came up with and that's what you hear at the end. Basically the, the committees report back to you and they summarize where it all ended and where, where the, this is where the conversations stopped and this is what they were willing to give so you get those takeaways and you get to read them and they're summarized and i'm sure um if the studios looked at the documents which are on online like you can google these things if the studios looked at the documents in terms of what the writers guild said the writers guild was offered by the studios the studios would probably say like well we didn't say it like that you know we were more optimistic about finding language for it we just didn't think it was um we just didn't think it was a priority you know and they act like we just outright rejected them so but you basically Basically, you understand why the conversation stopped. Interesting. I can't help but think of the moment, gosh, it must have been around 2008 when everyone was panicking about ebooks and everyone, it seemed, knew intuitively that they worked differently on our brains. And it took several years for people to say, oh, yes, when you have a physical book, when you physically turn the pages, when you physically highlight the words, you remember it better because more of your brain is activated. And it was mm-hmm. such a strange, absolute abstract concept at the time, the ebooks versus physical books. And that was kind of our equivalent then of the AI worry now. And mm-hmm. now I can't help but wonder if there's going to be this uncanny emotional valley when AI writes something and if it's going to impact our brains differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I I don't think, I mean, I've, I've messed around with artificial intelligence um, and I usually can't like connect with anything like on an emotional level that comes out, but like ideas will come out and I could see like, oh, I could see a very smart writer taking that idea and putting it into this place that affects me emotionally. But it's just it's just like the, you know, they get everything in the general area code or even the general time zone of a good idea. And then you got to drill down and find, OK, now we're going to this neighborhood of this city and following this person's life. Um, so there's yeah, there's a specificity missing there um, that uh, that makes it so you can't really connect with it. That pleases me because someone on a panel recently was teasing me because in our feedback panels, I always ask for more specificity. So you know, if you're out there listening, I'm thinking. About right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, no AI machine out there will have there's all these jokes about you know they will have never suffered childhood trauma they will never have you know felt the shame of what it feels like to be you know stood up on a first date so how are they going to transmute those feelings how are they going to transfer those right. feelings to a reader you know yeah that the nuance do you do you have any sense of the timing is this no end in sight oh for the strike yeah well the actors okay and- 
they if they go on strike, people are going to panic because you literally can't shoot anything. You can't shoot commercials. Commercials, yeah. Even, even reality shows where like there's a host, the host is represented by the the guild. So it's interesting. I'm a big believer that fiction and film have so much in common, <laughs> and the book to film industry is just fascinating to me. So do you have any thoughts about like do you think writing for film informs writing for books or is it vice versa? Like what do you think is pushing the industry? Is it book people? Is it is it film people? Is it a little bit of both? Because the book to film relationship seems to be getting closer and closer and closer. Yeah. Um, so you're saying like who is the tail like who's calling the shot? Yeah, the, yeah, the chicken and the egg, right? right, right <laughs> like right. like or, or like how do you see how do you see that the book to film, you know, going, you know, in this day and age and the opportunities for our, our listeners? Well, the converse, I mean, there's always going to be room for both because there's things you can do in novels you could never do in TV and vice versa and film. Um, but the conversations are starting like earlier, you know, like this author sent me the one page summary of a book they're about to write. Um, what do you think about, you know, working on something like this? If if the author takes a year to write it, do you think you could like turn this around and have like a screenplay for this, you know, one month after the book is done? So those conversations start really, really early. Um, there's a lot of conversations between, um, you know, screenwriters and authors as the book is being written. Um, there's like famous examples of this. Um, um, the one that coming to mind would be a nonfiction book, the book that the social network um, was based on. It's like the book was announced. The screenwriter started talking to the the book author almost immediately, and the book author would just you know call up Aaron Sorkin, the screenwriter, and say like, oh, you know, there's actually this new thing I uncovered. Um, I think you should know about it, you know. And so just this is parallel conversation as both of these were moving forward. So yeah, the conversations just tend to happen a lot earlier. Um, and I would guess, I mean, you could tell me the answer to this, but I would guess that sometimes a literary agent would screen novel ideas for whether they transfer to the entertainment industry, you know, like a very interior book where not a lot happens probably doesn't translate as well as, um, you know, the second idea that a novelist has. Um, so I, I, I imagine that novelists are getting advice um, to that end. That's actually interesting. I don't think that we are, I mean, it, just to make good writing, we talk about the idea of if you're looking at a stage, give your character something to do. So they're mm -hmm. not just standing there talking, but that feels almost more like theater kid advice than it does like translated right. book to film advice right. and it's funny because we hear about this so much as like yeah maybe something will get optioned it'll probably hang out on the shelf for a while and then nothing happens you know and we've we've heard other awful things what is the thing that people have said oh don't believe that your project is going to turn into book to count book to film until you see the words deal memo right 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 yeah um uh i mean i could say the same things about movie projects out here that you know people talk a big game about oh we've got this person attached and this person and you know we're this close to you know getting everyone money everyone talks such a big game what is right, that right, is that right. just like everyone just does that <laughs> it's like the opposite of yeah. a euphemism like you know you've got the euphemisms yeah it's moving slowly while we do analysis and then there's also like <laughs> you know we've got this person who might do it this other person who might do it like right, I, right. I love the enthusiasm but it's it's kind of confusing yeah yeah you just kind of have to you know adjust your um interpretation of things you know the more time you spend in the industry you start finding the dial of like what certain things mean but but yeah you know i would i would think 
that it can't hurt as a novelist to kind of like have a filter and just to understand that there are amazing books out there, um, you know, where Albert Camus, you know, The Stranger, like that whole book takes place where he's like sitting there in a prison cell, just kind of remembering his life. That would be a very impossible book to adapt into a movie. So if you're going to write a book like that, that's that um, someone reflecting and looking backward on their lives, um, it's gonna, that would be a tough sell to Hollywood. And mm-hmm. yeah, I know that's not any novelist like number one priority is to sell to Hollywood, but it's, I don't know, something to consider. I think well, we've it's certainly seeing, of interest. Yeah, everyone's interested. Uh, well, but we have been seeing when we um, podcasted, I think about six months ago, we had a, a writer that wrote, so the it was for the Empress and then we had the Pixar movie. Remember Jessica? And so like one was a movie and one was like a limited short on Netflix. And, but they went out, they went, they did backwards. So it was like film to book, you know? And so, you know, I think, I think there's more and more that we're seeing that it's hard to market a book. (laughs) It's hard to market a, you know, a film, like, because there's so much space and, and I mean, there's so much spaces, but there's also so much noise, you know, like, have you seen this? And like, and it's moving so quickly, right? You almost can't keep up with it. And there's so many choices. I kind of wonder if that's going to be more the norm that there is the industries moving closer together, you know, as we move on, because there's so much content to be had. Right, right. Um, yeah, you know, I would, I would think so. There's companies out here that definitely do it simultaneously. I can remember one in the YA space. I feel like, uh, Alloy Entertainment, this is, this is a while ago, but, um, you know, Vampire Diaries, um, CW shows like that, uh, were constantly the, the machine was running, the, the Hollywood machine was running before the books, you know, hit page 30. And sometimes the books and the movies actually had very little to do with each other. And it was just a matter of, uh, yeah, it was just a matter of not losing any time. Have the book and the movie running parallel or the book and the TV series running parallel. So one thing I am terribly curious about, can you tell us a fun story of a great moment of synergy in the writer's room? Like, does everyone just bounce ideas off each other the whole time? And it's super fun and exciting. I mean, there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows. And at its best, it's very exciting. And there's like these kind of mind melds going on where like, you know, where someone is going before they even go there. And those moments are magical when there's like solidarity in the room and and you know yet the the stories just start breaking really really fast and then you know there's the opposite there's a lot of someone saying something really passionate something really personal and someone else in the room saying i appreciate you sharing that but that is not helping that's slowing us down it doesn't work with these four other stories we have on our board um so there's also a lot of that so yeah a lot of ups and downs when it's going when it's going good it's great when it's going bad it's actually kind of terrible because, you know, you have like eight or 10 or 12 smart people and you feel so defeated that you can't like solve the problem. But uh, but yeah, magical synergy. I mean, there's always a great kind of speaking towards what we've been talking about when when something personal from someone's life, the experience in the past week or over summer or, you know, last Christmas, um, if they can relate what a fictional character is going to, to some kind of devastation or some kind of triumph that they experienced in their life, all of a sudden there's specificity and there's nuance. And it's like, I know exactly how to write this, what this character is experiencing and if the other people in the room can identify with it and like, oh, I felt that in college or, oh, I felt that with my ex-wife, um, then all of a sudden, you know, you've hit something that's relatable. It's like we hit like a relatable emotional conflict that 90% of the world can relate to because everyone in this room can relate to it. And we're all different ages in this room or different genders or different ethnicities. 
but we've all felt some version of this and all of a sudden you're like this will hit really well if we put it in this you know c story for this character in this ensemble tv drama um so those those moments are kind of magical and uh and yeah you know it's um it's a lot of time um with uh, a lot of uh people with uh kind of different perspectives so there's going to be a lot of entertaining conflict and there's going to be a lot of conflict that just is hard to navigate because um you fundamentally see the main character a different way but yeah it's it's crazy it's it's like you know 10 writers all thinking that they understand best what this character is thinking in this moment um so so yeah i always i used to play rugby and i always envision it like a scrum like a rugby scrum Like people are like down and they're like, like pushing, you know, against story and then it just breaks up and it's like willy nilly. And I think it's, it's such an interesting thing as, you know, someone with like autonomy over like whatever project I'm working on to share it. It's fascinating. Everyone that listens to our podcast, they're, they're here to learn. Do you have a favorite writing tip or a craft lesson that you'd like to give them? I mean, something I could tell you, this is recency bias. Uh, something I've been doing lately in order to like preserve momentum is stopping a little earlier than I used to in the in the day or not in terms of measuring in terms of like minutes and hours. But if they're, if you're excited about writing the next scene or the next chapter and you just want to hit the ground running, like don't just hold off until you wake up tomorrow or the next time you scheduled for writing. And that way you're actually going to write the first minute you sit down instead of checking your email and instead of checking social media, because you've been excited to write it for the past, you know, 12 hours or whatever. So that's something I've been doing lately. Um, it's, it's helped. Doesn't some writer have the advice to leave something in the tank? I wish I knew who said that, but I think. Okay. That's, that's an eloquent way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Leave something in the tank. Um, yeah. I, I've heard leave a sentence half done and you just have to finish. Oh sentence, yeah. Then yeah. 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 Moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Great different ways of, of putting it, but great advice. Yeah. I I always think like the when we hear about the avoidance techniques, like writers have the cleanest toilets. Their dishes are done. <laughs> like, right. you know, the dog's walked, you know, everything's done. And you're like, oh, I really need that to sit right. down. Right. Yeah. It's um, I mean, it's funny. Like one thing, I don't know if anyone could like put this into action, but something that lately I've noticed that's helped me is if I have one nagging bureaucratic thing to take care of or some kind of nagging chore, like the engine light has been on on my car um lately. And I feel like I should take it to, you know, the guy I know who works the auto shop near me, but I don't want to do it. And so every morning I'll wake up, be like, oh, should I do that this morning? Or should I just go hit page 37, you know, and kind of, you know, understand like for, for what I'm writing for myself right here, should I just enjoy an hour writing what I want to write instead well, of Well, I mean, if your car blows <laughs> up, you'll have plenty of writing time on the side of the highway. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, it's all kind of understanding your own avoidance tactics and figuring out what solves that. So interesting because it's like knowing yourself as a personality, um, and as, and all of the things that you do to procrastinate, but going back to the writer's room, which forgive me, I'm still so fascinated by, do they test for personality to see if you all are going to get along? Do they see, okay, this person writes really well doing dialogue. This person's great at scene. Like, how do they put you all together? Like a Myers-Briggs test. I was wondering that, but I heard Myers-Briggs is problematic. Definitely. definitely. You know, it's it's all in the showrunner's head. I mean, during the interview, well, before you interview, they're going to read some of your writing and you could tell a decent amount about somebody in terms of their writing. And then you sit down for an interview if any of the novelists out there are going to interview for the first TV writing job in the next few years, you're probably, if it's your first job, you're probably going to be the last person interviewed. Like the more 
established writers are already going to be hired, you know, like the number two, the number three. And if you are, you know, the lowest rung, the, the staff writer, the last person to get hired, something that you really can't do anything about, but really, really matters is how your personality or how the showrunner thinks your personality might, might mesh with the six other people who are already staffed. Um, and so that could be something like your life experience. It could be um, your age, your race, uh, your family dynamic growing up. It's like, oh, we really need someone who grew up in a single parent household or we really need someone. So there's there's that aspect of it. But then there's also aspect of like, you know, how much do you talk? Do you do you talk a lot? Do you talk a little? Do you um, firmly argue like the logic of what you're saying? Or do you kind of speak from a place of like, this is what I'm feeling? There's a, you know, a balance that they have in their head. And a lot of it depends on the show. Like if you're writing a procedural show, cops, lawyers, doctors, probably more logic minded people in the room because there's like a cerebral element to those shows. But if you're, um, you know, if you're showrunner and you're staffing a show that's just like an ensemble family drama, probably more emotive people, more feelings based people. Uh, you know, speaking of Myers-Briggs, you mentioned, Julie, uh, I love I love Myers-Briggs. Uh, um, explanations. Um, probably if you're writing like a more like family driven, relations driven show, you're going to hire more um, intuitive feelings based people um, than something that's a mystery, you know, with like death and murder. So it depends on the show as well. It sounds almost like casting for a reality TV show. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, except on reality TV shows, they want conflict. They want as many arguments as possible. So you mean they don't keep you up super late and feed you alcohol while they Like, could you ever see fiction writers unionizing? Like, is this, are we just too big? Are we too all over the place? Like, how would it benefit for us? Or could we, could you even see it happening? And was it really hard to get it to happen in Hollywood? Yeah, wasn't it, isn't it really old? Wasn't it like from the get-go that this happened? This really season? old. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it predates TV. It might be older than, you know, 1950. Yeah, I mean, I think having so many people professionally experiencing the same things on a similar timeline makes it so solid and just just emits this like wavelength that everyone can respond to. For novelists and for people who write um, fiction, I don't know. I don't know because it's so um, it's so disparate, and there's so many different types of books, and there's so many different buyers and audiences. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's possible. Okay, I just looked it up. 1933. Wow. Okay. Did yeah. Did we even have sound yet? Yeah, Wait, I was thinking it was with, no because I think I taught this lesson. I think it was with the early the early silent films, right? Okay. Yeah. 1931. Yeah, I mean, because it was like so from the get go, like, like it was. But it was a time when America was very unionized. Right. You know, like it's, it's yeah. fascinating. Okay. Google is saying 1923, um, the first commercial screening of motion pictures was sound. So actors got a voice, then 10 years later, writers got a voice. Wow. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So like hypothetically, if everything went right, how would writers of books unionize together so they have collective bargaining power? I realize this is a big question. This is making my brain hurt, Derek. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, so every fiction writer, every novelist or fiction writer on the planet would probably get a questionnaire, like, what are the five things that worry you right now? What are the five things that you fear most 10 years down the road? 
and there would be enough common response amongst like the top three issues that it would get people um, agreeing to correspond with each other, agreeing to meet. And then, you know, you hire people for the union that are not artists, you know, people who have a legal background, people who have a labor background. Generally, they come from having worked for other labor unions like automotive or um, the big you know, powerful unions of the past 50 years, they wrap their head around the issues and they say, okay, here's how we, here's how we fight this. And then it's just a lot of um, communication. And I don't know how a union has power if you don't have the threat of a strike. I think that's kind of 80% of your power is the idea that you get every single person to walk away. Um, because if you can't do that, capitalism and the free market can find a way around anybody's, you know, complaining. Um, so I think that is the number one card that you need to be able to play. I mean, we've said it before. If a couple thousand writers just didn't turn in their books, all hell would break loose. Yeah. Um, well, we, I mean, we did see that a little bit with was the HarperCollins strike that, that yeah. writers weren't were, were like the, the writers were in solidarity. So I think we're seeing glimpses of it. I kind of think it's like adjuncts, like college adjuncts, right? Like, so, you know, we have you know, you have a few, you know, colleges run on, you know, some tenured positions, but then they're just like the sea of adjuncts, right? And we might work for less and we might just be happy that we're doing because we like the students or we, you know, and I think because writers often, I mean, they often don't make a living wage as, you know, so they're kind of like doing something else on the side. And it just makes it very complicated when you look at it as a collective where I think Turk's right, like, the focus like of pilot season and it's season for this and like there's seasons in Hollywood and maybe there that's less so but like like historically there was seasons for it you know all the shows came out at this time and and I mean we are in creature change with it but it's still kind of built on that almost like you know almost like a farm a farmer like it's time to do this it's time to plant this it's time to put right, this out right. there it's time to pluck it up you know so I think yeah. it's just, it's, 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 it's interesting. One thing, one thing that would really, really help um, novelists organize is if the big heavy hitters who have release dates planned and who have people waiting on, you know, the next George R. R. Martin, like if he and 10 or 25 of the other biggest novelists were to take the lead and kind of fight the fight for the little guy or for mm. the class novelist, that would go a long ways. Because I imagine, you know, over half of the industry is built around um, the heavy names, the big names that everyone recognizes. Um, and so it kind of helps to have an industry where they care about the same issues that people who are just starting out care about. Yeah. Well, uh, Stephen King, if you're out there, fellow Mainer here calling out, <laughs> or, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I feel like even having these conversations just starts, it starts to, you know, like it starts us thinking. And it, when we look at our industry, it's such a barge, you know, it's, it's, it's just like, it's hard to move. It just goes straight and forth, back and forth. And we don't know what it's going to look like in 10 years and 15 years. And that's, it's exciting. It's scary. It's interesting. I, you know, I think it's all the things. Right. Yeah. It's, um, you know, things are changing faster and faster. And if you had come to me when I was in high school and told me that um, you could read books on your phone, I would just, first of all, I wouldn't like in, in the 1990s, I wouldn't know what that meant, you know, <laughs> on your phone. Um and just the idea that, you know, explaining to me what Amazon was, like, I wouldn't have understood what that was. 
Um, and so just in the past, you know, 30 years, so much has changed. Uh, yeah, you can't really like, yeah, I guess unions need to be actually like somewhat nimble as well because right. things are speeding in the, in the rate of change. Yeah, we there was just something, I was just start my mass communications course and what I'd always say, like we're preparing you for a future that we don't even know what the jobs are going to be. And, and so it, it is about being nimble. And I think for all of us, right? Like storytellers, for creators, for like, there's going to be more opportunities. There's going to be different opportunities. There's certainly more opportunities than we've had before. So there's a lot of really great silver linings where we're at right now, despite the difficult situation that, you know, the WGA is in. Tell us something that you're really looking forward to. Relating to the industry, actually, what really, I'll tell you one relating to the industry is I wonder if um, like Amazon and Apple have just kind of gone around and had their way with unions, um, not really having to deal with them over the past, uh, I don't know, few decades. Like if this strike is able to make a dent in the way that Amazon is able to um, conduct business and throw their weight around, that will be interesting to me because I feel like they've never really had to even concern themselves with organized labor. Um, so I mean, the world is changing and there's like six powerful companies that control 80% of our lives. Um, I'm curious if unions can actually like affect uh, the way they lay down their strategies and philosophies. Um, and the Writers Guild Union, it has enough power to actually dictate whether Amazon might have to pivot in terms of how they conduct business in the entertainment industry. Um, so that's something that I'm eager to find the answer to. You know, something that um, I'm excited about personally, I'm kind of curious what might come out of this. Like I'm talking with writers on the picket lines, a lot of writers are getting the chance to just um, disconnect from talking to studios, disconnect from talking to entertainment um, executives. Some aren't even talking to their managers. And they're finally saying like, I'm actually writing that stage play that I came up with in high school, <laughs> um, but I'm doing a better job than I would have done 15 years ago. Um, I think there's going to be some interesting art that um, comes out of this work stoppage because people are just, you know, scratching their own creative itches. Um, it's going to be hard to like understand what was written during the strike, but um, I think some good writing is going to come out oh of gosh, it. Gosh, are you working on a novel? Are you are you going back? I'm not. I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm procrastinating working on a novel though. So <laughs> I just love the idea that a writer can enter the guild and expect a middle class life where they don't have three other jobs right it's yeah like every, I want, that's everyone normal? wants in the guild like, what <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. i mean it's it's incredible and it's all the guild the guild is, has made that 100 possible like one thing i should mention this is an important distinction one thing that novelists have and um creators and other mediums have is they have copyright over their own material um, TV writers don't have that. Um, movie writers don't have that. The studio retains the copyright. Um, you know, ABC Studios or ABC retains the copyright for the, the TV show. So as compensation for not having that, you know, decades ago, writers were able, TV writers were able to negotiate through the guild residuals. Every time your episode of that cop show airs, every time your episode of that teen drama airs on network TV, you get a lot of money. Like, and it's not, so, I mean, this is something that, you know, if someone is trying to make sense of like, can I one day write TV and only be a TV writer. If you write, like the, for the, I, I've written three episodes of network television, the residuals for each one, like easily cleared a hundred grand. I think two of them cleared $200,000 um, just for the amount of times that they aired on these networks. Currently streamers don't have reruns. Um, it just stays there, right? And people click on it. Maybe they watch seven minutes. Maybe they watch 19 minutes. Who knows? They know, they won't share the information. They, the writers who wrote those episodes only get a one-time payment of like $2,000. 
compared to potentially 100 times that. Um, so that's kind of the biggest issue for the middle class writer. Um, and that's the biggest thing. The network residual has historically been the biggest thing that's made it so like, oh, like you don't have to get three other side hustles going, you know, for the wow. gaps in between employment. You can just have these checks arrive in your mailbox and you can pay your rent or your mortgage for, mm. six, you know. Um, so it's yet another example. It's almost like greedflation in reverse because I imagine the studios are doing great and the writers are suffering. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, the studios have been able or the streamers. So one thing that's happening is like these places have different agendas. Like when, when I say studios, that's kind of vague. Um, like ABC, NBC, CBS have different concerns than Amazon, Netflix or Hulu. Like they don't have to get new content up there September, you know, uh, when the new TV season starts. Um, and they come from the tech industry and they come from a very, um, what's the word, disruptive. They're, they're the disruptors, right? So in a way, they've traditionally been the enemy, the competition for ABC, Fox, CBS, um, wanting to disrupt their very model. And so um, it served them very well not to pay these residual fees. And so at a certain point, we may see, or we may hear about, I'm sure they have infighting amongst themselves right now, the, the legacy networks and studios versus the the technology disruptors they don't have this quite the same priorities i'm sure there's conflicts about the next step in terms of negotiations um so this strike will also um, be a huge tell in whether um, the new technologies are going to adhere to the traditions and cultures of the last hundred years of entertainment, or whether they're just going to, you know, give everyone the big middle finger and be like, no, that was, we're not going to release money into uh, the ecosystem the way you guys have done it the past 100 years. We're tight and lean and we like to move fast and break things. That might be the flag that they wave. And so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how uh, how much solidarity there is on their end, because they, they have very different um, desires needs mm -hmm. so if they met each other in a dark alley they'd fight yeah yeah they would they would certainly the streamers would make fun of uh the old fogey legacy studios and networks. Yeah. Mm, old fashioned mm. values like paying your workers. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that painted a good picture for a writer. Yeah. So I have no idea how this works. <laughs> well, so. you know, I just want to thank you because I think this is this is something that we people we people ask us about this and we try to muddle our way through, you know, an answer, but this is such a comprehensive look into this industry this piece of the of, of our industry. It's like this is all of our industries, you know, it's different pieces of it. But I think we all should know, you know, one begets the other. And as we know, and the more we understand, the more we can be there for solidarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's hard to side with the, the yeah, the people that want to squeeze the bottom line and, you know, make people work as hard as they can for as little money as possible. But, you know, that's that's capitalism. That's what the corporations are trying to do. And it's about convincing the people at the top of those corporations that um, the machine's not going to work at the speed and expense that they want it to. And if we look at several quarters down the line, people will appreciate the very human things written by humans who have a lifestyle where they can right. support themselves and buy. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. It's it's not like other industries where you can just crank out widgets, you know. OK, well, thank you so much. Where can we find you online or where can our listeners find you online? Um, yeah, you can. Let's see. Instagram. It's Derek S. Olson. Thank you so much, Derek. This has yeah, been amazing. So yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it was great talking to you guys. And uh, yeah, it was nice to uh, talk about this from a from a bird's eye view instead of yeah. just picket lines. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, 
It also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.